You are listening to the message by Antioch Centre for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. Welcome to Antioch Centre for the Nations. Make yourselves comfortable if you're not already comfortable. I'm so blessed to be here in the presence of God and I'm also excited about the word that the Lord gave me to share with you tonight. In case you do want to give in our offering, of course we take offerings, that basket over there in the center of the room is uh, available for you at any time. We just we pray in Jesus' name and bless that offering. God, whatever goes into it, let it multiply. Uh, you love a cheerful giver, so when we give, we give joyously, we give cheerfully. You said whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. If a man reaps uh, or sows sparingly, he'll reap sparingly. If he sows abundantly, he'll reap abundantly. And so, God, we keep that in mind, reciprocity. We keep in mind the principle of first fruits. That on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the festival of first fruits took place. And they brought the best of their crops and the best of all they had. Just as you gave us the best in your son Jesus in his resurrection. So Lord, we give our best. We make you the priority. Your purposes. Your principles. We seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness tonight. Lord, in this place, let us all be purified. Let us be cleansed. If any of us come into this place and we've had difficulties, we've had trials, maybe we've fallen, maybe we've sinned, maybe a dark shadow is trying to loom over us or control our lives, maybe we're wrestling with depression, whatever it is, God, we know that in the amalgam of faith that the believers form, an atmosphere comes, your spirit fills it, and there is liberty there. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we partake in that freedom. We've not been given a spirit of fear but a power of love and a sound mind. A spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, God, we yield to you, we receive your joy, we receive your comfort and your rest. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to put the title of our message up tonight. It's misspelled, but that's okay. It should be... (laughs) Can you alter that very quickly? Thank you. I wish I'd had some hand signals like to send Caleb to fix that. It's not the bloody coat. It's the bloody coat. And I'm not from the UK, so I don't mean it that way. I'm American. We don't use that term this way. But the bloody coat, the power and potential of our point of view. Now, you're probably thinking the bloody coat, you who are older, In faith, maybe you've read the Bible a lot, you know exactly what I'm talking about already in the sense of what this bloody coat means. And that's, of course, the outer garment that was given by uh, Jacob to his son Joseph. And we're going to get to that in a minute, but I want to give you a little bit of a a route to how this message came about. I was reading something that a dear friend of mine in the United States uh, posted in his, he has regular newsletters he sends out with great revelations, and he's always been a real blessing in my life, and I love him a lot. And when I read this little bit, one line in a, in, in a hundred lines caught my eye, and it was concerning the garment or the bloody coat. 
And so it just would not leave me. And that's the, that's the wonderful thing about a message from God. Message from God has seeds that come out of it. And if you catch those seeds, one seed can make a whole nother message. And so I'm, I'm so excited to share this because it just wouldn't leave me. And I studied it deeper and deeper and I went into it. And so I want us to get right into this by reading a passage from Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to begin in verse 25. It says, Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus, they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, Reuben returned to the pit. He wasn't with them when they did this. In fact, he was the one that arranged for him to be put in the pit to preserve his life instead of killing him outright. And it says here that now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit any longer. So he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. Now, as we begin this, I want you to consider some elements here, some things we're going to look at. And we start by understanding that life is lived in an arena of many souls. We are in a society. We live in a civil organization of people, at least it's mostly civilized. And we relate to one another. We give each other information. If you've been outside and you come inside, I might ask you, is it raining? Is it hot outside? And you can give me information. If I've been in the air conditioning all day, I don't know what it's like out there. Maybe I want the information so that I can bring an umbrella or not bring an umbrella. Nothing worse than carrying around an umbrella when you don't need it. It's just this heavy burden. And of course, when you need it and you don't have it, it's the most valuable thing in the world. Kind of like a taxi. When you need a taxi, it's not there. And when you don't need it, there's four of them. You ever notice every green-lighted taxi you see going by when you don't need it? You stand at the bus stop and they all come by. But in this case, you tell me about something. You give me information and we help each other that way. We gather information from many different sources. So we live in a society where that happens. We form this society of these individuals. We make up a mass of people, each with their own opinion. Each individual has varying motives in their lives or purposes that govern his or her choices in relation to you, and especially the way they talk to you or they give you information. So often we don't think about the fact that we become subject to the winds of opinion and ideas. And 
I know this is true because every place I've ever preached the gospel, I know the truth, I lay the truth down, and I give it to people. But in each culture, in each place, it depends highly upon the society around them about how quickly they believe in it or whether they believe in it at all. I'll give you an example. For instance, in Japan, the social structure is extreme. It's very forceful. It's very governing, and it is simply social. It's not like there are laws. There is religious freedom in that land. But the society itself is so self-policed and self-enforced that Christianity is a very, very small, less than a percent of the population is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least name themselves as Christians, because they don't want to be at odds with the social structure. And that, of course, is a dilemma for missionaries to solve. Both of my sons contemplate that often. They're working on that as missionaries in Japan. How can they get through it? So perspective is, is very important to consider. In other words, people can say things to you that change your feelings or ideas. Uh, they can alter your mood and change your emotions by speaking things to you. You can be in a great mood and then somebody come along and say just one sentence and you're in a horrible mood. Did you ever have that happen? Somebody just tell you something that totally disturbs you. You were fine until they told you this little piece of information. So we affect each other in this way. Whether the information is correct or incorrect, true or false, you are still affected by it and may choose to believe words that people speak to you, even if circumstantial evidence does not prove it to be true or false, you just listen and without knowing all the facts, in other words. So it's like here with Jacob. Now I want you to consider what's going on. They took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood why? So they could bring it back to Jacob and show it to him. Now, that means that there is a series of events here going on, and we're going to get into this because this message has three things that we're going to talk about. The power and potential of your point of view. We're going to see perspective, perception, and paradigm. Perspective, perception, and paradigm. And I'm telling you now that if you get a hold of what I'm about to tell and share with you, you could very well be set free from some bondages. You might get liberated from some limitations or even some blindness that has plagued you your whole life. Let's start with perspective. This is what I call a limited point of view. Everyone in this room does not know what's here on, I mean, you can see paper, obviously, but you can't see this text. Why? Simply because of your perspective. From your point of view, you don't know what I have up here. I, I could have a, a hot dog with chili and mustard on it sitting on this stand, and you wouldn't know it because you can't see it. That's perspective. I can't see into your life. You really can't see into my life with clarity. And that's why we should be so careful about our perspective. This is from a Latin word, perspectiva. And it has to do with the science of optics. And it's related to the word for telescope. Because it's something you look through. It's a point of view, a mental view or prospect. This is from the Webster's Dictionary. A visible scene. The capacity to view things in their true relations and relative importance. The appearance to the eye of objects in respect to their relative distance and positions from you. 
So we're defining perspective in a natural way, but as we look at the story of Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers, we see here actually a drama unfolding that's going to teach us about perspective, because there's five different perspectives here. In this story, we have Joseph, we have the brothers, we have Reuben, who's one of the brothers who was not there when the brothers really did what they did in selling him to the Ishmaelites, and then there's Jacob. Now, Joseph here we begin with, he is the target and object of the point of view. In other words, it's how Joseph is seen. So he's the object. The subject we'll get to in the end of this list. But at this point, Joseph is the, the object and not subject of our examination. We're just letting him be a part. Of course, the story is Joseph's story, but our focus for this message will be Jacob. Because he's the one we want, we want to put ourselves in his position. And so here, God has a purpose for Joseph. And everyone around him is truly relegated to a position of service to that aim. Whether they know it or not. You know Romans 8.28, what does it say? Anybody, guess. All things, not some things, all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purposes. How many of you believe you are called according to the purposes of God? That means that the universe entire has to serve that purpose. Maybe not serve your purposes because you know you don't always get your way. Do you know there's things that you desire and that you try to achieve and that just doesn't happen? So therefore, the purpose that is capital P purpose of God Almighty, that cannot be thwarted. No matter what, it will happen. It will take place. God will have his way. And so Joseph is an object in the hands of God. And we know already, because we're Bible students, that this man will be the savior of the known world. And by the help of God, he's going to save the world from hunger because of wisdom and dream interpretation and supernatural unction upon him. And it's important that we recognize this all-powerful fact that Joseph was subject to the purpose of God. And I hope we all are. I mean, it's my, it's my greatest desire to be subject to the purpose of God. You say, well, how do I subject myself to the purpose of God? It's really simple. You pray like this. God, not my will be done, but yours. Done. That means that every time you pray for something, every time you make a petition, every time you ask God for something, or enter in an intercession, please add the final clause. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Because the Bible says you have not because you ask not or you ask amiss, it says in James. Meaning that you ask in error, wanting to consume it for yourself by your own desire, your own lusts. And so God may not allow that to happen. They wanted to kill their brother. God worked these circumstances out very craftily so that they couldn't kill their brother. Because God had a greater purpose. So just rest in the purpose of God and understand that God's purpose is priority to God. Above my purpose, above your purpose, above our desires. He'll give you the desires of your heart, but ultimately he's got something to do with you and through you. And as long as you're subject to that, as Joseph was subject to it, all else will be subject to that force of fulfillment of said purpose. Joseph. Now we see the brothers, and they want what is evil, and they make a plan. There are a lot of people in our lives, maybe in a professional atmosphere, maybe in your family, whatever the case, how many of you had people in your lives that have plotted against you? 
people in your lives that have done things to bring you down. So that's like these brothers. Of course, we always have that. So we see this collective of evil, I call it. And when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you meet these people. Just daily life, you'll see people that are a collective of evil. It seems like there's greater pools of them in some places of the world than others. I think the greatest number of these pools of people that I felt had evil intent toward me was in India when I lived there for six years. But I felt it in other places. I felt it in my own home. I felt it amongst my own relatives. I'm not talking about my wife and children. I'm talking about when I was young. I've seen this. I've felt a collective of evil working against me in my church. More than once, how many of you say amen to that? More than once, I have found the brethren working against me. Well, that's what Joseph has here. This is Joseph's brothers. So we see this collective. This group are those that want what they want regardless of what is right or wrong. They don't care about God's purposes. But we know a man does not have to care about God's purposes to end up subjecting himself to God's purposes. Like the man that was bothered by the widow, the unjust judge. It says, not that I fear God or that I even care about this woman, but just to shut her up, I'm going to give her a favorable sentence in this court case so she'll get off my back because she's going to kill me or wear me out from her constant request. So what was that? That was somebody's will being bent to the purposes of God, being fulfilled through petition. But that's actually another subject. But here, these guys, you will always have opposing forces like these. A man surrounding you seemingly uh, and often apparently hateful towards you. And sometimes th it's not so, so clear or at face value, but they're there. So they serve their own lust. They're looking to do this. The brothers just wanted to do away with Joseph because of jealousy. But Reuben at least was a bit of an ally. And that guy always seems to exist in this drama. A sense of reason and wisdom, but limited by evil. Reuben was still part of this group. So he's still doing wrong. He also was amongst, because you go back in the passage, it says all the brothers wanted him dead. They hated him. It says in one chapter three times they hated him. They hated him. They hated him more. They hated him all the more and wanted him dead. So he had all working against, including Reuben. But when push came to shove, Reuben felt a certain obligation to protect him. Where did that come from? That's the God factor. Even in the midst of evil, working. This is an ally in that case. So he made a plan to save Joseph's life, but unfortunately in his absence, they didn't kill Joseph, but they sold him to make a profit. Then later Reuben went to rescue him out of that cistern, and, or that pit, and he was not there. Now he's distraught. Don't know what to do. He goes to his brothers and says, what happened to him? He's gone. Probably as evil as they were, his brothers didn't say anything about it because they wanted to keep their percentage of the money. And so whatever the case, they did what they did, but there's always an advocate that works on our behalf but is still subject to the greater society. So here we are navigating our way through life as the object of God, but now let's put ourselves in the shoes of Jacob, a man left with limited perspective and victimized by it. Ignorance, the inability to see, the inability to, to 
have the perspective or the point of view will cause so much suffering to you if you're not careful. And if you're left to your own humanity, if you're left to your own devices mentally and emotionally, you will only always live by your perspective. What if you can see something greater? What if you can see from another point of view, a better point of view? Well, in this case, Jacob, he's the subject of our discussion. He's in this position that life put him in, but yet God is still in control, just like he's in control of our lives. We can take courage in the fact that God's never left us. He's never abandoned us. He's always going to be there. It might not seem like it. I'm sure that in the time that Joseph was going through this, he did not think God was fully in control. In fact, he named his children, way later on, he named his children miserable names that were about his suffering, which means that he was suffering from a form of depression. These issues in his life affected Joseph all his life. Now, Jacob here, also, if we think about it, why would poor Jacob be caught in this place to be victimized or to be lied to, not really lied to, but given limited evidence, and that's where the devil works his best when we are presented with limited evidence and forced to make conclusions. So Jacob honestly sowed a lot of seeds toward this. We can't say that Jacob was innocent. You know that he was a surplanter. You know that he did what he did to Esau. You know that he did a lot of sneaky things. And God still blessed him, which is good news for us, right? Even though we make mistakes, even though we do foolish things, even though we kill Bathsheba's husband, we still by the grace of God, can hold the title a man after God's own heart, still become the standard for all kings to follow. So grace is limitless. Even in the Old Testament, we see that. But here, Jacob, living his life, he made choices through the years, and, and God had to cover those choices. But still, it's no big deal for God to put Jacob in this position in order to fulfill a greater purpose. And he does it to us all. But we can get through this and make it easier if we learn from this story. So we serve an amazing God, as we've already established. He works through all things, does everything for us, good or bad, uh, right or wrong. Whatever we go through, he's on our side. He's working. I know it's hard to believe sometimes, just like uh, Jacob at this time is not going to have an easy time with this. Joseph certainly doesn't believe that God is on his side until he's finally delivered from that prison some, some 20 years later after the fact. So it's a long process he went through. But ultimately, in light of the biggest picture and the plan of God, does not matter what we want. God's purpose has to be priority. We must bow in deference to that. Now, the fifth person here is God. The God perspective, we really don't have to say much about this. God is God. Let every man be a liar. What does the Bible say? Let God be true and every man a liar. So we can't really trust man overall, but we can always trust God. The Father has a plan and a strategy from his perspective. Now, Joseph saw things one way, his perspective. The brothers saw one, one thing from their perspective. Reuben saw something from his perspective. Jacob now is left with his perspective. And God sees everything from far above. That's why it says his ways are higher than our ways. His, his wisdom is beyond ours. Because imagine if you knew what God knows. You have an all-encompassing perfect perspective of all things. That alone should invoke some trust in us toward God. So what is God's purpose for your life? Good question. So understand, as you make choices in life, that you are integrated into a vast, 
machine of purpose. God is the God of that purpose and that machine. This mechanism that he puts over you is to bring you to where you belong. He's going to work everything out no matter what. I love the story of Esther with Haman who builds these gallows to hang Mordecai and ends up hanging on him himself. See, that's God. God can turn everything around even when we think all is lost. We just need to keep our faith and continue. So now... We see this perspective again. Remember the things we covered. It's a mental view of prospect, a visible scene, the capacity to see things. So now we see what perspective affords us and what conclusions do you make and by what perspective do you make them. Keep that in mind. Jacob has a choice now and we're going to go into the second part of our message because we all have a choice and that is our perception. Regardless of your perspective, a perspective of which you don't always have control. And so you cannot always, sometimes you are limited and there's no way you can learn more or see more. But your perception is under your control. How you think about something. And this is where I made a post recently saying that whatever circumstance you're in, and no matter what dilemma you're in, no matter where your heart is, changing the the perspective might not be possible but if you change your perception by view of that perspective it can change everything without the circumstance ever changing and you can be free even though things are exactly the same I think we've all experienced that at one time or another something really got to us, something really bothered us and then we finally got a certain perspective usually predicated by a phrase like well it could be worse or something like that, that we just finally, whatever, and we feel better, we feel light because we were so perturbed or irritated by it. It was so annoying to us that this thing was going on in our life. But you change your perspective or your perception by the way you interpret your limited point of view. Genesis 37, 32, under perception, it says, And they sent the very colored tunic, and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it, it says. Okay, now he has a choice to make. He's given this coat, and they're asking him to come to his own conclusions about the limited evidence in front of him. Logically, now be careful with logic. Logic can be very dangerous. Logic is looking at things or looking at your perspective from the perception of logic. You base everything upon evidence, your empirical evidence, or like a scientist works, like uh, individuals that will look at something and make a choice or a decision, but you know there's always a deeper story. And you know this is really important too. Let me take this that we're talking about right now. And please, if you want to get set free from some serious deceptions, apply this to texting. Apply this to short messages. Ever have somebody write you a message and it's very brief, but you just get a funk off of it? Like it's something like, what do they mean by that? And you get mad. I've had people get mad at me many times because I was washing dishes. In other words, they texted me something. We were in kind of a conversation. Then I had to go wash dishes, and I did not answer right away. 
And the first message after the absence of my last message was, where are you? Where did you go? This is another message. Another message. I guess I said something to upset you. Another message. I didn't intend to upset you. Another message. I'm really sorry. Next message. Well, fine. Be like that. Next message. Well, you know, you have problems too. I swear, this is an act that happened two days ago. So I finally get back to 37 messages. And this person's like putting a hit out on me, calling the mafia to destroy me. And I get the message and I, I just laugh. And I said, I was washing dishes. And they said, oh, never mind. <laughs> Literally, never mind. <laughs> so that's an example of how a limited point of view can, if your perception is wrong, can bring you off anywhere. It leaves you to your own creative imagination. Now, that's exactly what the people in this drama are doing to poor Jacob. They're giving him some evidence, very limited, and they're not telling him. They didn't say to him anything. They just said, look, here's a coat. They know darn well whose coat it is. They did this, but they just offered, here's a coat. Can you tell whose coat this is? If this is uh, the one, uh, uh, what do you think? We found this. See whether it's your son's too. I think it's, is this Joseph's? Deceitful. People do that in your life. You need to be prepared for that. This is a deceptive presentation of facts designed to force conclusions without all the evidence. So this is perhaps the most powerful aspect of the work of the enemy against us. In fact, if you can get this settled and try to work on this problem in your life, you're basically handcuffing Satan and hog-tying all his demons. Because they work with lies. They are, he's the father of lies. He's a deceiver. That's the way that he works and what he does. We all know that God is in control and that he has the best plan possible for us, but our dilemma is our limitations of perspective. And we can try to see it, all, but honestly, we will never be able to see it all. It's a matter of trust. Do we trust that God is God? Do we trust? Your perception and how you perceive all things will tell you whether or not you truly trust God. So we foolishly decide to judge a given circumstance, relationship, issue, or season of life, or times that we're going through by our limited perspective, and we form our perception. And, you know, this is a quote from a politician in the 1950s. He's the first one to say it, that your perception is your reality. I'm sure we've all heard that. Your perception is your reality. So you make real what you can see, what you can see. Now, this is a problem. If your perception is your reality and you never go beyond what you can actually perceive in a physical realm, then I doubt you can really get saved. I doubt that you can connect with God I doubt that you can, because see, we are living not by sight, but by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that are invisible. It says, when you pray, you go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. The things that are invisible are the most valuable things. The things that are visible are the least valuable, the Bible says. So our perception is dangerous. And it, he said this, and it's, it's quite true for those that allow their reality to be the product of their limited perceptions made from that limited perspective. So then, if you do this, you will always be limited to living in a prison of half-truths. You'll always be the one to jump to conclusions about every intent of everyone. Now, maybe you feel justified because one out of ten of your conclusions actually was true. You think, I knew it. 
You're happy to say, I knew it, but if those other nine that you were wrong, you don't mention those. But think about how often you are deceived simply because of a limited perspective. And there's this passage, this story, this gives you a good idea of how this is another instance of perception and how the enemy can use this. In this case, the Old Testament being a type and a shadow, we're actually going to go see an enemy of Israel who did a really clever thing. Joshua chapter 9, verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, I mean, these guys are coming through like a wrecking ball. God's glory is on them. Walls are falling down. They are confiscating all that. They are dominating the landscape. These people hear about it from Gibeon, and they are afraid. They acted craftily, it says, and set out as envoys and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him, and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you're living within our land. See, this is instinct, God instinct. Their first impulse is, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How do we know that you're from a distant land? Prove it to us. Prove it with what? Empirical evidence. He says here, perhaps you're living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? They said to him, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Now, first of all, most of this information is true. This is what I mean by half-truths. They are they did hear these things. They are aware of the power of Israel. They are afraid. They are their servants. At least they want to be. They'd rather be their servants than be dead. And that's part of their ploy, what they're trying to do. Take provisions in your hand, the elders said, for the journey. And go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. I'm sure the elders did say take provision, but they said get moldy provision, get old stuff, make it look like you've been traveling for months so that they will think you've come from afar. This is our bread that was warm, and when we took it for our provisions, it was warm out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins which were filled, or were, were, filled were new, and behold, they are torn, and these are clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions. This is a lot like taking the bloody coat. 
You take something in your hands, you look, it's a lot like that text message when it appears. It's a lot like what you see someone. You ever see someone talking to someone else and they turn and look at you and look away. You are positive they're talking about you. But you don't know that they're talking about you. You just assume it from the limited evidence that's put before you. So the men took, the Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And there it is. That's the problem. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them before Jehovah God, which they would never break that oath because they made a promise. But they made an oath. They made choices for life and made decisions based upon what? Based upon a lie. What could they have done to not make this mistake. Well, just reverse what it says. They did not ask the counsel of the Lord. All they would have had to have done is ask the counsel of the Lord. That's what David's strength was. He always asked the counsel of the Lord. He never did anything by assumption. He didn't look at a giant standing out there and decide because he's a giant, it's not possible for me to take him down. I will not. He did not. He listened to the Lord. He listened to God's direction. He felt God was telling him to confront Goliath, and he did so and brought him down. But they didn't. So what happens when you do not ask the counsel of the Lord, but entirely base your choices upon your perspectives? Well, your perception becomes your reality, and it just so happens that your reality is false. But you still have to live it. How many situations do we get in? The hawker guy, you know, lie, 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 tells you this little tool can do a million things. You buy it because he did it. Ever see someone do all these things with it? And you think, oh, if I had that, that guy had been training for a month to be able to do that. You get that thing, it does not work. That's why kitchens are filled with unitask devices and things that are just filling drawers and you can't even open and close the drawer anymore because you bought all this junk that doesn't even work. My wife hates unitask devices. She doesn't allow them in the house. She sees them as an evil. Because they show you the thing and think, oh, this is great. You want this. And I've made many purchases in my lifetime. Things that look so great. This is wonderful. In fact, it's a, it's a, there's a proverb in the Nico family that's, that says, remember the flippin' flyer? Now you're thinking, what's a flippin' flyer? Well, my son Michael, when he was a little boy. They had this toy called a flippin' flyer. And it was this little thing with these little cords two strings going through the middle disc and you had these little handles and you pull it and that thing spins and you and it does all these great things and he had to have it. It was wonderful because he was watching the commercials and seeing it demonstrated. We bought him the flipping flyer. He played with it for maybe 30 minutes and never touched it again. So we said, why did you think that this flipping flyer was the answer to all of your dreams? And now you don't even use it. Because he saw, of course, that's what advertising is. Do you believe advertising? I don't even look at advertising. I go to consumer reports. I go to blogs and vlogs and listen to reality. I'm never going to listen to what someone who's selling it. They have, a, they have a dog in the fight, as we say. They have a vested interest in, in making it sound better than it is. They're always trying to sell you something. These guys are selling the Israelites a lie that they are from a very distant country and they sought not the counsel of the Lord. I want you to think about this. You know, Satan and Gabriel, two angels, had the same perspective. 
Both of them were in heaven before God. But Satan perceived things from the original self-awareness. He saw things from himself that he could accomplish something. Think about deception in its very inception. When it became something, before that there was no rebellion. Rebellion was born, deception was born in Lucifer. When he became sentient or self-aware as an angel and decided that from his perspective, his perception was that he could be as great as God. And he would lift up his throne. Of course, Gabriel was there too. Gabriel didn't have that perspective. Gabriel had the same perspective, meaning Gabriel did not have that perception. His was governed by God Almighty. He only gave glory to God. Whenever he talked, he said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I stand in heaven before God. There's none greater, none more wonderful. But Satan had another perspective. And that's why he became the father of lies. And that's why immediately he found created man and spoke to Eve to get her to become self-aware so that she could perceive things from a perspective. Her perspective was a fruit in a tree. She saw it. Adam saw it. Adam never touched it. Adam just walked by it every day. He didn't care. He was too busy keeping the garden anyway, too busy naming animals. But the fruit was there. He could certainly see it. Both of them had the same point of view, but now you see the perception was different. And it's interesting to note, Eve's perception was altered by what? The opinion of Satan. You can have a really good perception from a limited perspective by faith until somebody comes along and starts to sow seeds of doubt in you. When we believe what our own devices of mind tell us, we are misguided. And Lucifer learned to believe in himself. He learned to live by self. And what do I want? And what's in it for me? And how can I do this? And sure enough, it brought him in a wrong place. Now, I want us to get back to our original story here. And we've seen perspective. We've seen perception. But now we're going to go on to paradigm. If you don't know what this word means, it simply means your worldview. How you see the world is how you live it. The paradigm of a 10-year-old in a village in India versus the paradigm of a 10-year-old in Tokyo, two entirely different paradigms. Everything they do, their choices, their decisions, everything about life will be greatly different because of the world that they see. So you are formed. We're products of our culture, products of our environment, what we see and what we behold. We cannot help that. Wherever we were born, that's where we were raised. I often see people that were born in some of these nations and they are very impoverished. It's not their fault. That's where they were born. It's also not my fault that I was born in the United States of America. It's not your fault that you may be born here in Singapore. And look at all the advantages of this perspective. And your perceptions are adjusted as Singaporeans. My perceptions are often governed by an American mentality. But now, of course, 35 years out of my country, it has greatly changed. So my paradigm has shifted drastically for a few reasons in my life. Firstly, because of my exposure to God's kingdom. My exposure to the glory and the presence of God is the one most powerful force of change in my paradigm than anything. 
because it changed my perspective from mine to his. My, one of my mentor's fathers, Danny Oss, used to say, if we could just climb up into the lap of the father and see things from his perspective, how different would life appear? And it's true. The world that forms within the walls of your limited point of view, that's your paradigm. So it goes on in verse 33. This is Jacob speaking. It's my son's tunic. It is. First of all, that's a fact. So right there, first thing he says is right. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. That's conjecture. So Jacob tore his clothes. This is the results of his conjecture. Put sackcloth on his loins and mourn for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters rose, or arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Shul in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Actually, we see three steps to erroneous paradigm development here. I want to show you how easily you can get misguided. And your worldview can be governed by wrong perceptions from your limited perspective. Number one, he says, it's my tunic. Well, that's limited evidence assessment, as we've been talking this whole message. So first, in the first part of this message, we see that Jacob speaks conclusively. Here, he speaks conclusively that the garment, or this text we just saw, the garment covered in blood is his son's. Now... This is an undeniable fact. How does he know that? Well, he made it. He created it himself. He wove it. He embroidered it. He did whatever. It meant that it was a texture that had to be woven very carefully. It was a beautiful garment. If we saw it today, it would probably be amazing. And that's one of the reasons why his brothers hated him, because his father went over a lot of, or into a lot of trouble to make this beautiful garment for his son. And, and now this is that very garment. He remembered the hours of work. He remembered on the loom. He remembered spinning. He remembered doing everything and sewing and putting it together. So obviously that's facts. You cannot deny this. And everything that Satan uses is on a foundation of fact. But it's what you think about the fact that he works with. Fact. There is a fruit that is forbidden in the garden. That's a fact. And Eve knew the facts, but Satan went to work about her perceptions about that perspective. So it's my son's tunic. You see things, the conjecturing beyond fact is what makes deception work. So obvious falsity is easily discerned, but assumption built on truth is a veiled lie. So things you can see right away, it looks like it is at face value, that's fine, but conjecture beyond that. Guesses about it. Before the Israelites started the conquest to conquer the land on the west side of the Jordan, you remember the story? The tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were given land on the east side of the Jordan, and the rest of them on the west side of the Jordan, and they settled, and those men went with them. First they said, look, we like this side of the river. So these, these two and a half tribes said, we want to stay here. Let's put our kids and our wives here and our animals. And they said, wait a minute. You're supposed to fight in the battle with us. How are we going to conquer if we lose two and a half tribes of the 12 tribes? 
What's the deal? You trying to welsh out on your obligations? No, 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 not at all. And they said, we will simply leave them here so that we will be better equipped to fight without being concerned about our families and our goods. In fact, we will take the front lines. And they said, deal. So they went with them, conquered all the land of Canaan, the Hittites, Herovites, Perizzites, um, all, the, all the ites. So all the ites, they de-ited the land entirely. When they were done and there was peace in the land, they returned to their encampments on that side of the river, on the east um, side of the Jordan. Now while they were there, they decided to make this altar. It was actually a memorial. It was not intended, at least we don't think. And once again, we're, we're given limited information about this. But they made this thing at least look like an altar that was an altar, but it was an altar memorial and not a place to make sacrifices. Well, word about this massive imposing altar that they put up from the motivation of wanting their children to never forget their alliance with the tribes on the other side of the river. But when they heard about it, the other tribes, um, the the Eleven and a half came and decided they have started a new cult. They have their own God. They've turned their back. Death to them. They said, it, may God destroy us all if we leave even one of them alive by morning. I mean, they were furious. They march over there, cross the river, full battle gear. And the men of the two and a half tribes come out and say, well, what's the deal? You're going to die because you did this and did that. Well, what was the point? They said to him, no, 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 you misunderstand. And they explained what that giant altar was for and that they were not burning sacrifices on it. And that, in fact, it was a memorial, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, oh, never mind. And they went back on their side of the river and everything was fine. Gosh, if God's people, which we are, can be so deceived by just some things we see and guesswork. We just jump to conclusions. It's a fact they had an altar over there. But why? What was the motivation behind it all? And when they found out, everything was settled. Number two of these three steps to erroneous paradigm development, a wild beast has devoured him. Now, this is belief in assumption and conjecture. This is not a fact. This is guesswork. But... If you speak to Jacob at this moment, he is 100% convinced that it is fact. And he keeps that in his heart. And this assumption of Jacob, he allowed his mind to produce images of possibilities based upon the truth in his hands, but entirely unverified. He guessed. But that perception became his reality in that moment. A wild beast has devoured him. And the third part of this, these steps to erroneous paradigm development is perverted life view. Now his paradigm is this. Jacob tore his clothes. Jacob lived for a long time separated from his young son. When Joseph was taken away, Jacob went into a time of mourning that was so deep and he was mournful and broken for 22 years. Think about that. 22 years he believed that a wild beast had devoured his son. And he entered into his world, became, I write these things, deceived, distressed, and depressed. 
A wild beast has devoured him, deceived. Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days, distressed. But he refused to be comforted, depressed. And he lived in that depression for 22 years. The only consolation he had was a younger brother, a younger child, that at least his last one. And that's the one later that Joseph bargains to get, remember. So here he, he's got this world. But who made the world? Who created that world around him? He did. He made it himself. We create our worlds by the guesses we make, and we need to be careful. Millions of people all over the world live their lives like this. I see them constantly in every area of life. They do not pursue ultimate truth, and they suffer as a result. So I ask some questions. Uh, what areas of your life and existence have been altered by limited views of reality? You really have to meditate on that. Really think about it. What areas of your life and existence have been altered by limited views of reality? Another question. How has your assumptions formed your world and are those assumptions accurate? Your assumptions are forming your world. Your perception is your reality, but start thinking, are they really accurate? Or are you so proud of your cognitive ability to come up with conclusions that you are self-deluded to think that you must always be right? It's very dangerous. How much of your misery can be eliminated by simply changing your point of view from a human-limited perspective into a God-oriented view of life? This is where my freedom comes from. This is no matter what I'm confronted with, no matter what I see, no matter what it looks like on the outside, I take it into my prayer closet. I say, Daddy, what about this? And I'm distressed and I'm freaked out. I'm heartbroken about a thing, but I bring it to God and he's always saying the same thing to me. Calm down. The first thing the Father always tells me, calm down. And he explains things to me. But a lot of people never take the time to do it. What can we practically do to change this? Of course, I'm not going to bring you this far and not give you a solution. I want to help you. That's the whole idea of a message, problem and solution. Anybody who's been to my Bible school, you know what a message is. Well, we have labored the problem extensively. So now I want to give you, by the way, uh, the, our subject of the sentence does not have a solution until 22 years too late. And at that time, finally, yes, he is reunited with his son. If he had known way earlier, he probably would have interfered with God's plans. So we see once again, purpose is bigger than us all. But in this case, we're looking at it from the perspective of how can we be careful about our perceptions and of our perspectives so that our paradigm not be twisted. So the solution to this problem is simply not trust your limited point of view. Three steps to godly paradigm shift. Now we want to shift our paradigm back from misery to mercy. Back from suffering to success. Number one, repent. Start right there. Lean not on your own understanding. Change your perspective. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. See, part of it is we're trying to make our own path straight by our guesses and our choices. He's the one that can make it straight. 
we see that your paths become crooked by leaning on your own understanding. So if you want to have a crooked path, just trust yourself. Listen to your own understanding. Don't involve the things that you need in life and just, you know, the first thing we need to do in this problem is to fix our paradigm. It's, it's to change our mind. That's why the message that, that John the Baptist taught, the message that Jesus taught, the message that the disciples taught, all the same message. Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change the way you see things because the kingdom now is accessible to you. You can climb up into the Father's lap. But it starts with admitting that you've done things poorly. And I do that every day. I'm, I always go to God and say, God, I think I've messed up things. Uh, help me with my perspectives and perceptions. Help me with my broken paradigm. What can I do? Repent. Say, God, I'm sorry for taking things into my own mind and not counting on you. Say, God, I'm sorry for not having sought the counsel of the Lord and now I have a bunch of moldy bread and old clothes and some guys I have to let live that could have been eradicated from my life. All of this you can avoid by just repenting. The second thing, read. The word is a lamp and a light. It says in the scripture, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Second time path is mentioned, your other crooked paths have to be straightened out. Well, part of that is to just read. I like the scripture in Ephesians talking about married couples. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The washing of the water of the word. God's word can cleanse you. God's word can purify you. When it comes to changing your paradigm, there's no stronger tool than the word of God. And think about the word of God from cover to cover is filled with perspectives perceptions and paradigms. You can apply this to every single character and ask yourself, what did they see? Abraham, he had a perspective. It's called reaching 100 years of age and you still don't have what you're hoping for. So what was his perception? His perception was that he was not adequate and couldn't do it and it was impossible for God to do it. So he started sticking replacements. Eleazar he stuck in there. Then he put Ishmael in there by taking Hagar as his wife, causing a lot of problems along the way. There's so many stories that we can see this in in the scriptures. We can learn from their mistakes. That's why their stories are written there. This is the washing machine of truth is God's it's the pressure washer of truth. You ever see those guys? With, I've ever done pressure washing work. I love it. It's so empowering. I've actually done it as a job before. And you have this dark, dingy, moldy, algae-covered sidewalk. And you take that Karcher 10,000 and crank it up. And, it, and you can see just it leaves white, beautiful cement behind. Pressure wash. Now, what you don't want to do is accidentally hit your skin with that thing. Done it. Not a good thing. It will cut you like a knife. It's so strong. That's God's word. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to pierce asunder or divide the division of joints and marrow, soul and spirit. To do what? To reveal the thoughts and intents of the human heart. 
It has a way of cleansing you, purifying you. You need to read the Bible. Oh, no, Stephen, don't tell us to read the Bible again. I'm telling you, there's no greater solution. Please read your Bible every day. Study, meditate in his law day and night. You will be blessed. It all these things can be avoided if we just knew more. Think it of think of it as what you do to wash something properly. What do you do when you really want to wash something properly? You ever had a you ever have a glass and you put something in it? The worst is like cereal and milk, and you forgot it in your nightstand or something. Now you guys are not pigs like me, but I've done that. Forgot it entirely. It's like behind something, and it dries completely. Have you ever try to wash one of those glasses out? And it's like cemented in there. Or rice dried up on something. Or you know these starchy things that stick. It's so, what do you, how do you clean that? How do you wash that vessel? You have to soak it. Or you can scrub it, but you're going to have to scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub, right? That's the scrubbing is like volume of reading the Bible. Yeah, you're going to get something. But the real key is soaking it. Meditate on the word of God. The more you meditate, or this was message came from meditating on one passage. All this truth starts coming to mind. The third thing is pray. Seek his point of view. This is the counsel of the Lord. Think about Hannah in the temple. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Hannah had a miserable life. Uh, the other one, that, that, the other uh, wife, Peninnah was fruitful and had children. Hannah didn't. Her husband loved her very much and gave her extra portions, and she was favored. It didn't matter because her perception of life and her perspective was that she was childless and she was miserable as a result. And so if you want to change your paradigm, pray. Go to the Lord. Tell the Lord what you need, what you want. Open the eyes of my heart, and he'll be able to change everything in your life. So this is what we're seeing. We're seeing this perspective and then our perception and then our paradigm. Repent, read, pray. Repent. But repent is just humility. Some people don't think they need to repent and so therefore they don't. Well, that, that puts you in a position of, of inability to change for the rest of you. Repent is change. You just need to say, God, you know, maybe I got this wrong. Help me out. And then read the word. Go to the word. Let it be your source. Let it be your washing. Let it be the light to your feet, the lamp to your feet, the light to your path. Then pray. Bring it all, all that you've gained, all that you've thought in your changing, your humiliation, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. Go into his presence with the word and say, God, please help me. Humble yourself before him. And he can make a difference. Amen? Now, I have a prayer I usually don't do this, what I'm about to do, uh, but I actually scripted a prayer out for us. Usually I say, just pray to the Lord and go home, bye-bye. But I actually wrote an entire prayer out, line by line, and I want us to pray it together. If you see some part of this prayer you don't like, well, then just don't say it. But everything we just covered is embedded in this prayer of change and allowing God to help us. Amen? Why don't we stand to our feet? Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we need your help.
Now, as the frames come in the prayer, just, just I want you to pray it with me. We're going to do it slowly and methodically. Say, Lord God Almighty, we come to you at this moment. And nobody's reading. You're not going to read with me? I mean out loud. Let's start again. Lord God Almighty, we come to you at this moment to ask for your help in life. We have been misguided by our assessments of the world around us. We have been misdirected at times by the opinions of man. We have been deceived by the limited evidence of life. We have made choices and decisions about our life based upon restricted points of view and have suffered as a result. We come to you seeking assistance and freedom from this trap. We apologize for all the times we did not depend upon your advice and counsel about all things. We repent for having followed our own understanding without involving your wisdom. Your wisdom and truth found in the word of God is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. Help us to seek you in prayer. Put a deep yearning and drive in us for prayer. Help us to seek your counsel in the word of God. Put a deep desire in us to read, study, and absorb your truths written in the word of God. We pray for a total renewal of perspective. We pray for a new perceptiveness based not upon man's wisdom but God's. We pray for a new paradigm lived in the presence and power of your spirit in the name of Jesus we pray amen amen just right where you are with your eyes closed for a moment as you prayed the prayer I also want to pray a bit more for you Lord I, I love the people in this room now you speak to me to bring information so that their lives can be assisted. This is my job. It's what I do. I'm honored to do it. But Lord, I pray that everything that we've covered tonight, this information would go deep. Your spirit has the ability to take things like this and affect real change in people's lives. I don't want anybody in this room to be bound. I don't want anyone in this room to be governed by limited perceptions. So God, I, I ask that you would liberate them, that you would teach them, that you would open their eyes. Everything they prayed, God, let it be answered. I pray right now the angels of God would be running off to heavens with the scrolls of our petitions lifted up on high so that the king can read them and say, this will be granted. Let the anointing of God be upon everyone here so that they will be free. We're not going to leave this place without having been changed and transformed. We're not going to leave this realm without having been altered by this message. Let it bear fruit, Lord, in our lives. Let it make a real change in us. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Thank you for it, Lord. We love you so much and we're so grateful. We put the summation of the message. This is what we saw. The bloody coat, the power and potential of our point of view. Three, the power. We saw these three things. The perceptive, I mean the perspective, perception and paradigm. Then we saw the three steps to erroneous paradigm development, your limited evidence assessment, belief and assumptions, and conjecture. And then the perverted life view. You saw what happened to uh, poor Jacob in this story. 22 years later, finally set free, but we can be set free before such a long time by simply following these steps. Repent, read, and pray. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord.